Today's psalm is Psalm 82. God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Because the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, judge of the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. Well, this week, I had the opportunity to attend theater for the first time in a very long time. Uh, it was Aaron Sorkin's uh, adapt Broadway adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird. Now, beyond the wonderfully paced dialogue that's usual for Aaron Sorkin's work, a few moments stuck out for me in this particular play. There is this collective sadness and anger felt, I think, by the entire audience when the jury declared Tom Robinson, an innocent man, to be guilty. We all felt like we were in the courtroom that day. And in another scene, Scout, you know, the preteen narrator, described the confidence that she had in the court setting. She commented on how all rise used to mean something. It wasn't just a perfunctory statement uh, uh, when the judge walked in, but it was a confident declaration that our in participation in the legal process, even if it's just a stand, is was and still is important. What she was saying, I think, is that together we make the world more just. Now, do you have a favorite court scene? Maybe you recognize a few on the screen here. Often these scenes are powerful because justice doesn't go the way that you think it should. See, you as an audience member, you have the privilege of seeing the guilt or the innocence of the defendant. Yet the plot often doesn't go the way that you hope. You know the truth. And you know it's not even real because it's a story. But you feel the anger and you feel the disappointment just the same. You know, on the 4th of July, I passed by the Supreme Court and saw a few protesters with their signs declaring their anger and their disappointment towards the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And their signs expressed this disappointment that a few people with power seemed to be able to take away the rights of women to choose for themselves. A few days later, the Supreme Court also ruled to limit the powers of the EPA to regulate emissions here in this country, further setting back Americans, uh, America's ability to reduce the impact of human activity on climate change. More people were angry. More people were disappointed. 
It's like being part of an audience at a well-done play. You see, from our screens or from our couches, what should seem very obvious as a just decision turns out not to be. What are we to do with these present injustices in the world that seem to set the world backwards rather than forwards? It seems so clear to us as observers, yet the decisions don't seem to go the way that we hope. What do we do with this powerlessness? Is there any hope? What do we do with these burdens of our soul? That's where the Psalms come in. You know, in the Soothing Psalms for the Soul message series this summer, we learned the power of the Psalms to help us voice the words that we didn't know we needed to say. And even more, the Psalms direct our concerns to the only one in the universe who is able to do something with those emotions. Psalm 82, as Ryan read for us, reminds us that while some things really seem out of control, those who take advantage of the vulnerable in this world will not ultimately get away with it. This psalm reminds us of the assurance and hope that we have when we really trust God to see and to judge all things rightly. So we're going to walk through this in the usual three stages, God versus God's. God, our defender, and God, our hope. God versus God's, God, our defender, and God, our hope. Now, Psalm 82 is a kind of a unique psalm. While most psalms, you know, we can connect with and identify this, express, they express this deeply personal feeling and circumstance, Psalm 82 is a bit different. It serves as a uh, community lament or a prophetic hymn, reminding us how the living God is our true rescuer and true defender. Now, perhaps this structure of the psalm may be helpful. I'll just put it up on the screen here. Verse 1 is kind of like the the scene. It sets the scene. It's like the text that comes across the screen, you know, when when the B-roll of a a movie starts. And verse 2 is the psalmist venting and crying out before God, like, God, what's going on? Verse 3 and 4 is the law, is a statement of the law. He's saying, this is the law, God. So why aren't things like this? And then verse 5 to 7 uh, set, serve as God's charge against the gods. It's like a courtroom scene. And finally, in verse 8, it closes with a prayer from the psalmist. It's a declaration responding to what God will do. Now, verse 1 describes this assembly of beings who gather around God's throne in a divine court. Now, when I read this, I picture a scene like this. The Galactic Senate from the Star Wars. Or the UN. In the ancient Near East, all major decisions were thought to have been made in a divine council. The gods would all gather together, kind of like, maybe like a scene like this, and share their opinions and information. But in this particular scene, in Psalm 82, the living God is to whom the psalmist prays is not just one of the gods amongst these many gods. God is over and above as we've been singing this morning. The living God here presides over all the other gods and in fact judges them. The gods, quote unquote, referred to here in the quotes added in our English translations are suggestive of some competing gods who are actually no gods when they are compared to the living God of Scripture. It's more likely that these, quote, gods refer to earthly human rulers and judges. 
Specifically for the people of Israel, these gods were the judges who God called to lead God's people. And Jesus' own, Jesus quotes verse 6 in, in his, when he's interacting with the Pharisees in John chapter 10, verse 34. It's up on the screen here. And in verse 7 of, like, of this psalm, God declares that these quote-unquote gods will eventually die. So these indicate that these aren't actually gods on par with the living God. They're, in fact, just humans. You know, we also find this, as the psalm unfolds, this assembly is not one to be consulted as they would have expected at that time. We find that it's an assembly where God will judge these beings. God is not one God among many equal gods. The living God of Scripture stands over and above all other gods. And all these other no-gods, in fact, were easy to picture for the Israelites. You see, at the time, many households would just have their household idols to whom they prayed. And eventually those became temples that were erected, you know, to gods of fertility, gods of the seasons, gods of war, to provide a sense of provision and security. Now, that all sounds foreign to us in our modern ears. We would snub our noses down at perhaps organized religion. But it doesn't mean that we don't have gods that we call, that we have call the shots, calling the shots in our own lives. What might be some of those gods in our lives? We serve gods of money and consumption. We serve gods of success and recognition. We serve the gods of comfort and happiness. And we even serve gods of human rights and individual autonomy. Now, there is nothing inherently wrong with any of these things. We all use money. We all need to shop for things. Moving ahead in your career is probably a good thing. Human rights and dignity are worth fighting for. But scripture points out how good things can often become ultimate things for us. Good things can become gods, replacing the living God as the one in whom we are to put our trust. You see, even amongst us here, we can sit here and worship and sing songs on Sunday, but the real God is at work in our hearts. It might be something else. How do I recognize when something has become a competing God? Well, whenever I feel intense anger or intense fear, those are signals, perhaps, that a competing God is at work in my own life. You know, those emotions are indicators that something else has become ultimate for me. For example, I like to learn things. I like to learn new things. Learning in general is a good thing, right? But along with that territory of learning is not wanting to be wrong. So if someone points out something to me that challenges my knowledge, and even if that knowledge is about God or about theology, about God, those are good things, right? Right? But if I find myself getting angry or fearful that my ideas are being challenged, then those are signals to me that I have possibly made my knowledge or my position ultimate. And when those emotions pop up in response to being challenged, then I must prayerfully ask myself if I love that position or I love that knowledge more than I love God. You know, the only... But only the living God deserves that place in my heart and in the world. 
So what makes the living God so utterly distinct compared to other so-called gods? Because only the living God of Scripture reveals God to be our true rescuer and our true defender. You know, when I lived in Canada, I, for a few years, I played in a recreational ultimate frisbee team. And this particular league, when I think the sport in general, if you play ultimate, you can tell me after the service, it's a sport that encourages collaboration and sportsmanlike conduct. So after every game, both teams would come together and do a team building activity together, or they would sing a song together. That's part of the culture of ultimate frisbee. And team captains, when the, when the, the game was done, they would not only report the final score to the league, but they would give each other, the, the other team, spirit points as a sign of how sportsmanlike and how team spirit they, uh, how much team spirit they reflected. So I remember one particular game was on Canada Day weekend, and so the teams decided to sing the Canadian anthem together. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the lyrics, there is one line in the song that goes, "God keep our land, glorious and free." It's part of the anthem, Canadian anthem. It's essentially a prayer buried within the national anthem. But with most of the participants not professing an organized faith, someone suggested, well, actually, they insisted that we change the words from God keep our land glorious and free to we keep our land glorious and free. Now, most went along with that change and, and no one blinked an eye. That change seems very minor, but it reveals one of the unsaid storylines of our modern age. That is us who make the world better. It's us, it's we who defend ourselves best. It's we who make the world more just. With sufficient education, with sufficient resources, with, with sufficient willpower and more tolerance, we can overcome injustice and oppression. Now, Education, willpower, and tolerance. These are all important things. We should all encourage those. But the story of Scripture offers a different storyline. You see, we don't do it all ourselves. We aren't the ones who make sure it happens. We do have a part in making the world more just and whole. But our involvement and our rationale are much different than what is often presumed in our day and age. Better than being the ones, rather than being the ones who must see and who must enforce justice, our responsibility is to respond and to imitate the living God who truly sees and who truly defends justice. The living God is the only one who is all-powerful, a.k.a. omnipotent. He's the only one who is all-knowing, omniscient, and ever-present, omnipresent, these three kind of traditional terms to refer to the character of God. You see, as much as we think we're qualified for the job, only the living God is qualified to be God. We see the qualities of God revealed in this psalm. If you take a look at verse 3 and 4, it describes this law that human rulers are meant to uphold. But this quality points to God's omnipotence. These human rulers were supposed to to use their power to help and serve and protect those who are most vulnerable, yet they did not live up to that responsibility. They were to use their leadership to protect and defend the most vulnerable listed here. There's the weak and the fatherless. Those are 
those, the weak and the followers are those without earthly resources, whether it's family structure or whether it's wealth. The poor are the downtrodden. The oppressed are those who are impoverished. The needy are those who can be easily exploited by those with greater power. As in many other parts of Scripture, this psalm presumes that in this present life, there will always be vulnerable persons. And with this law, those in leadership are not to favor the weak or fatherless and the poor and the needy, but they are to be, to be considered as precious ones to be protected by law and by just leadership. They're, they are to be protected by the power of law breakers who would hurt them. You know, while human leaders and institutions will always remain imperfect, the living God is the only one who holds the power to truly defend the vulnerable because only God is omnipotent and wields that power with love. You know, verse 5 describes how these idols know and understand nothing. They walk about in darkness compared to the knowledge and the vision of the living God. Only God knows all, and only God sees all. Only God, because God, in fact, is the source of all truth and light. Only God is omniscient, all-knowing, and uses that knowledge out of love. And a truly wise and intelligent person acknowledges that our knowledge and our perception is limited. But God's knowledge is not, because God is omniscient. Now, in verse 6, the living God reveals the hypocrisy of these earthly rulers. You see, in the ancient Near East, kings believed themselves not just to be representatives of divinity, but some believed to be themselves divine in status. When they became a king, they became godlike. For example, the, the Roman Caesar was to be honored not only as supreme king, but to be also worshipped as God. Here's a coin from the Roman Empire during the reign of Caesar Augustus, and it says, Caesar Augustus, the divine father of the country. Caesar expected to be king, but also worshipped as God. But here in the psalm, the Lord, uh, the, the Lord points out that no matter if you call yourself God, you may believe yourself to have God-like qualities, and you might even demand others to worship you, you being God, is delusional because you will die like mere mortals because only God is omnipresent and only the living God is eternal and unbounded by time and space. Now, we may not have coins minted in our name and we might not demand others to bow down and worship for us, but we often live our lives and our, live out our concerns like we are the center of the universe. And we expect the world to revolve around the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. So what's the big deal of this? Why does this matter? See, if the living God of Scripture is truly all-knowing, all-powerful, and ever-present, and if, the God is, if God is loving and good, then we find that frees us from the burden to ensure the world becomes more whole and more just. Because it's in God's hands. It frees us from having, having to do all the rescuing. Because God is the true rescuer and the only one qualified 
to do the work of setting things right in the world. The character of God removes the burden from us when we see injustice. Now, at the same time, though, it doesn't mean that we don't do anything. While we are not ultimately responsible to defend the defenseless and to bring justice to the oppressed, it does not release us from the responsibility of that work. You see, we are compelled to do the work of defending the vulnerable and bringing justice for others because it is a reflection of God's work in our own hearts. Those who have recognized God's love for us in Christ Jesus also realize that God has rescued us. God has defended us from the effects and the consequences of our sin. By God's grace, we are constantly, I know I am, I'm constantly made aware of how I need to be rescued from my own selfishness, from my self-centeredness, and from my own pride. And because of God is doing that work continuously in my own heart, I and we who recognize God's work are compelled to make the world more just, to make the world more whole because it is an act of worship, an act of gratitude, and a response to the living God that we have encountered. That changes everything because God is our defender. Now, the realities of God's character and action in the world are what motivate the people of God to action. We are to be people of action, but our rationale is very different in the world. Our hope is not in the results that our actions accomplish. And vice versa, our hopes are not completely dashed because justice doesn't go the way that we expect. Our hope is simply in the God that we serve and worship and follow. And that's why the psalmist ends this psalm with this prayer of hope. It's not a prayer of judgment. It's a prayer of hope. When he says, rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. This all belongs to you, so you're going to th- make it right. God will judge the earth. Nothing will escape God's attention. And even after the psalmist has identified how these earthly rulers have failed to uphold their responsibility, have failed to wield their power with love, and even after the unfortunate effects on those who are most vulnerable, the psalmist does not lose hope. The psalmist ends with this bold prayer of confidence that God will rise up and judge the earth. I wonder how much of our prayers are informed by that kind of hope. Yes, we can lament, but we can also hope courageously and boldly because of God's love for us and because of God's love for the world. You know, earlier I mentioned this disappointment and this anger expressed by many after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. And I'm guessing that sentiment is shared by some of you here. You know, I acknowledge that I still have lots to learn about abortion law, and and I don't presume to speak on behalf of those whose gender I do not share. But was I saddened and angry by how this law was overturned? Of course. But because I also trust in this God who is true and just and loving, I do not think the situation is hopeless. It's an opportunity for better laws to be written that honor the dignity of women and 
children of all involved. It's an opportunity to recognize that we cannot talk about legalizing or criminalizing abortion without also talking about affordable health care and contraception and family support. It's an opportunity to consider how imperfect our laws are and how they can be improved. You see, even one of the, the most respected Supreme Court justices who built her career on equality of women, the late Ruth Baden Ginsburg, expressed her reservations that Roe v. Wade was not the best case to set precedent for legalizing abortion. In her opinion, the case was built on the physician's right to practice rather than on the woman's right to choose the best care for herself. Our laws can be improved, and God calls us to speak that out. You see, wherever you stand on this particular issue, do not be overly hopeful in the result, and do not be overly hopeless about it. To take the time to learn more about what scripture and what Christian tradition might inform this issue, but also many other issues that we face regarding protecting the vulnerable and how this speaks to when life begins and how to protect the lives and livelihood of all. And you'll be surprised to find that the issue is not always as clear-cut as you make it out to, as we think it to be. If you missed it, I encourage you to take advantage of this uh, abortion policy and Christian social ethics Zoom sessions that Mako Nagasawa from the Anastasis Center has, has, uh, has been hosting. He began the first one yesterday. It's been in our newsletter in recent weeks, and so if you just go to this uh, link, you can find out more. I think he's running it in the next couple of weeks. I was able to join the call yesterday, and I found it immensely thought-provoking and encouraging. It wasn't clear-cut, but it helped me think better about this particular topic. You know, whatever burdens uh, of injustice may be on your heart today, remember who really is God. Remember who is in control. Remember who is making all things new. And remember how God invites you and I into that meaningful work together. As you do so, I hope you will pray this prayer together with me. Verse 8, rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. Similarly, the prayer that Paul prayed in light of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 16.22, it's the same sentiment, maybe different language when he says, Maranatha, which means come, Lord Jesus, come. We need Jesus to come to set things right. Our vision and our knowledge are so limited. Our power is so limited. But we do not lose heart, regardless of what happens in the world around us, because God is on the throne. All will be well. All will be well in God's time. Amen.